Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Eugenics was inspired by Darwin's ideas about evolution and developed in Victorian England as a theory for improving the British population, and it quickly spread to America, where it was embraced by presidents, funded by Gilded Age monopolists, and became a part of American laws that served as an ideological inspiration for the Third Reich. The book is published by W.W. Norton, brings Adam Rutherford, who's both a geneticist and a broadcaster, to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Very uh, great pleasure to be with you. You say that genetics has a short history but a long past. Doesn't the concept date back at least as far as the Spartans and Plato? It does indeed. In fact, one of the things that I argue in the book is that really the mindset of eugenics, the idea that you can shape uh, a population or a culture or a society by controlling or attempting to control reproduction really is in every culture for as long as we have records. The first version that we have in in the Western canon, as you rightly say, is from Plato. It's in Republic in books five and six, where Plato describes his utopian version of a society where every year there is a uh, a, a marriage festival, he describes it as, where mm. gold standard women are matched with gold standard men and they have children together and the bronze standard people have children together. And that way, the quality, and I'm using air quotes for this, scare quotes, uh, the quality of people in society is maintained. Selective he, he breeding. Exactly. Kind of Selective inspired breeding. Inspired probably by uh, the way people traded cattle. I think so. And, and the farming analogy is used throughout the history of eugenics. It only gets given the name eugenics in the 1880s, but I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a mindset which is present in all communities, in all cultures, for as long as we have records. If you can breed animals, if you can breed sheep to be woollier or cows to have bigger udders, then why can't you breed humans to be faster or smarter or better looking or any traits that society deems valuable. So Plato proposed a utopian city-state in which elite men and women would be matched for their qualities and, quote, inferior citizens would be discouraged or prevented from breeding. Yes. And we never see that happen. Plato's utopia mm -hmm. never comes to pass. Um, but that idea that if you want to improve the quality, again, air quotes, of a population, then you have to rank people. You have to decide who is better. And the real question throughout the, the history of this idea, which we, we call eugenics today, is, well, who gets to decide? Hmm. And what are those qualities? And that remains the sort of unanswered question. And, and this is why I think that eugenics always was a... A, a, an ideology of power more than a sort of pseudoscience or science as they thought about it in the Victorian era. It's really a reflection of who has power and who gets to choose who gets to reproduce. So didn't early advocates of eugenics during the Victorian era, the 19th century, regard it as a way of improving groups of people? Was it an inspiration for Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein? It's a little bit, uh, eugenics comes to pass a little bit after Frankenstein, but it's part of the same uh, sort of mindset, the whole scientific revolution era that's happening in, in Britain, centered around London, but also in Paris and in, in Berlin at the same time, which is that we are beginning to wrench control from nature with the new science of, well, in Shelley's case, it's it's galvanism and understanding electricity and its relationship to the body. But then in the 19th century, it becomes evolution and our understanding that life is all derived from what has come before. Darwin, Darwin. publishes, the, the, exactly, The Origin of Species, 1859. And it's his cousin, half-cousin, in fact, Francis Galton, who sees the, the, the ideas in Darwinian evolution. The first chapter of The Origin of Species is actually about artificial selection, not, not natural selection. He's talking about breeding and farming and agriculture to show that species are not fixed they're not they are not immutable they can change over time and so, galton says well why don't we do this to humans why don't why don't we why don't we make society better and galton was uh darwin's half cousin he and his follower uh carl pearson were at the university college in london but didn't you study at the galton laboratory at that school 
I was an undergraduate in the Golden Laboratory <laughs> from 94, and the name was abandoned in the year 2000. Not really for political reasons, not, not the same sorts of reasons that we're going through sort of renaming and denaming conventions at the moment. It just got a, it just kind of got absorbed into the main biology department where I am a lecturer to this day. So I'm, I'm a lecturer in the genetics department, the same mm. department that I was an undergraduate in and the same department that was founded effectively by Francis Galton as the eugenics laboratory. So it's part of my... Why this guy's been with me for since I was eighteen years old, so it was inevitable that I was eventually going to write a book about him. Didn't Galton coin the word eugenics? What is it? He did. He it's it's he a combination of hue and genics. Exactly. So it's it's from the Greek, and and that's not um, that's not irrelevant because Galton really believed, as many Victorians did, that the Greeks were the greatest civilization, the greatest people that ever existed. And so he came up with a, a term. It's in a footnote um, in 1883 to a, to a book on, on sort of ideas of heredity. And it's a combination of sort of good and birth. So good birth or good genes. We don't have the word genes at that time. That doesn't come till 1900. But it's essentially a positive, it's viewed as a positive phenomenon. This is how we prove society. The, the because problem, they, because they kind of feared a already, decline of civilization at the time? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's, I mean, I think it's true in every, in, in every society at every time there is a fear of declinism. But there's a particular aspect to this, which is very Victorian upper class and British, which is that all of the main protagonists in the eugenics movement go to the same schools. We call them public schools here for, for ridiculous, archaic reasons, but they're, they're exclude. So places like Eton and Harrow, mm -hmm. they all go to these same schools and they all go to Oxbridge, Oxford or Cambridge, to, for their universities. And in that system, at that time, you study your main subjects and you also study classics. And the veneration of the classics is absolutely essential to the sort of eugenics mindset because it, it imagines the greatest civilizations that have ever existed as being Greece and Rome and maybe Egypt and that there's no social mobility in those, in those civilizations but look at what they achieved um, but if you read your, your gibbon which they all did at the time uh, you know that the decline and fall of the Roman civilization happened at least partly because the upper classes the ruling classes became decadent and didn't have enough children, whereas the immigrants and the working classes were having more and more children. And so, hence, Rome fell. So the threat that is being felt in London with the expanding colonies and in America with immigration uh, rampant and all around Europe is the same threat they imagine, they fantasize, it's the same threat that the fall that caused the fall of these great civilizations. And that is, mu is what must be quelled. And uh, people like Mary Stopes, who was a birth control pioneer, feared the consequences of the working class outbreeding a social elite, and she advocated the sterilization of mixed-race girls. She did. She is a fascinating character, most closely associated in, in Britain, at least, with yeah, I've never heard of her. I've heard of most of the other people you write about during this time, but not her. But I, yeah, I've, a, I've heard a, about this think, idea before. Um, we're, so how relevant are concepts of race and, and racism to this story? Well, so Margaret Sanger is the kind of equivalent of Mary Stokes in America, and she also was an advocate of, of eugenics. Less so to do with racial, well, miscegenation is the term that gets used. Mary Stokes was an out-and-out -out racist. She was a Nazi-supporting, uh, she wrote love letters to Hitler in the late 1930s. Mm. But she, it's very interesting that eugenics is often associated with sort of right-wing ideologies and fascism and, and Nazis, but it was equally well supported on the left by socialists, by progressive, by first-wave feminists um, at, at, in this era, Stokes being one, Sanger being... Uh, another. How closely is it intertwined with race? Well, we have to remember that the way race was discussed in the 19th and early 20th century was not quite the same as how we regard it today. Almost everyone 
has a racial hierarchy. Classification of humans is not just taxonomic, it's hierarchical with white Europeans being superior over all others. And almost no one doesn't think that at the time. We, we, we rejected that as a result of genetics in the, in the 20th century. Um, but a lot of the eugenics policies were targeted in, in Europe against people that we, wouldn't, we would no longer consider as separate races or dif- distinct races like the Irish or Slavs or the Polish. So really it was, about, it was about preventing people whose characteristics were deemed undesirable by people who were in control. The so, U.S. immigration laws were reflected that. For a time, they restricted the immigration of, of uh, people from, from Italy, southern Italy, and from uh, Eastern Europe, especially Jews. Yes, that's exactly right. And a really interesting chapter in the history of the first two or three decades of the, of the, of the 20, 20th century America is, is when the... the Johnson-Reed Act, Immigration Act, is passed in 1925, which many people think just shut down immigration, but it didn't at all. What it did is it filtered immigration to very carefully reflect the existing population of America as, as it stood. So all Chinese people, or sorry, all Japanese people were, were banned from, mm-hmm. from um, immigrating into the States. Until Richard people- Nixon signed a law that changed that. That's pretty late. I know, isn't that incredible how long that lasted? And um, it, was, it, it, was, it was designed to promote Northern Europeans being um, b- brought into America, having for 15 years before that, or the pre- previous 15 years, there being, as you say, lots of Southern Italians, lots of Irish. And um, what, the, the sort of link with eugenics here is very, very robust. The person who was brought in to provide scientific evidence i mean i'm saying i'm doing air quotes for the third time now when i say scientific but evidence of the innate abilities of the various people of america and wanting to uh, immigrate to emigrate into america was a guy called harry lachlan Mm -hmm. and harry lachlan was the second in command at the eugenics records office in cold spring harbor upstate new york and he was one of the most virulent um passionate eugenics advocates in america one of those guys who you know you don't really hear much about but actually was weirdly responsible or a key linchpin in some of the biggest global geopolitics of the 20th century and you give him a lot of pages in this book a lot of what you give him a lot of attention in this book even though most people haven't heard of him I, i i guess so i mean I'm, I'm sitting over here in London, and he's a fascinating character to me. I mean, a bit of a bruiser and quite an obnoxious man. What, do, do people know about him in the States? Did you know about him well, before I'd, I'd never heard of Harry Lachlan before, but maybe that's just me. No, I, I don't think it is. Um, I think that he's a really crucial character. He's, he's crucial in, in providing the scientific evidence for the, for the Immigration Act of 25. He's also crucial in that he was providing the legal framework, a boilerplate legislation for enforced sterilization across various states. 31 states had Hmm. enforced sterilization. He also uses that template and gives it to the Nazis in the 1930s. And they use that in 1935, translated into German, as the basis for the first of what becomes known as the Nuremberg Laws. And that is the German, the Nazi eugenics program. So that link, that link between the eugenics records office up in Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island, particularly via this guy, Harry Lachlan, to the Nazi eugenics program is, it's, it's scientific, it's legal, it's financial. The, the German labs were being funded by the Rockefellers at the time. And it's a bit of history, which I didn't really know until I started writing this book properly. I've been teaching this stuff for quite a long time. But to get into the nitty gritty, that link between um, the American eugenics movement and the Nazi eugenics movement is really, really both robust and, and I think, shocking. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Adam Rutherford, whose most recent book is Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, 
published by W.W. Norton and Company. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We've uh, left out a few other uh, important figures. For example, Winston Churchill, the creator Mm -hmm. of the welfare state, um, had uh, disturbing views about eugenics, didn't he? William Beveridge? Yeah, absolutely. So Churchill really was the main political driver of eugenics um, legislation in the UK. From about 1907 onwards, he had read a pamphlet by um, a doctor from Indiana called Dr. Sharp. And it's best to describe him as an enthusiastic vasectomizer. He claimed that he could perform 300 vasectomies per day without any local or general anesthetic, with no repercussions, which, frankly, I <laughs> I slightly wince when thinking about that. I also think it's untrue. Anyway, this guy, Sharp, wrote a pamphlet, which Churchill read, and we know he read it because we've got it in the archives, and he's underlined bits of this, of this booklet. And he proposed to... He was the Home Secretary at the time, so the sort of Secretary of State in the Asquith government, and he proposed using... Uh, initially vasectomy, but later he proposed for a second time using what he described as Röntgen rays, which is X-rays, only discovered 15 years before that, to sterilize people deemed unworthy, mostly under this sort of weird hmm. pseudo-psychiatric term, the feeble-minded. And he proposed it in legislation which didn't make it past the draft stage, and he proposed it again in legislation which didn't make it past the draft stage, and then he proposed it in a third piece of legislation which eventually became the Mental Deficiencies Act passed in 1913. But due to the filibustering and campaigning of one particular member of parliament, a guy called Josiah Wedgwood III, who's also part of the Darwin-Galton family tree, he had the um, the legislation about enforced sterilization removed. So when that bill passed, we didn't have the sort of key eugenics element in it, despite... Churchill's advocacy for it, campaigning over many, many years to sterilize people deemed unworthy of reproduction. But uh, the other aspects of the British establishment were involved. For example, uh, the ideas of Galton were picked up by the new journal called Nature, and you write that eugenics was embraced by, I'm quoting, suffragists, feminists, philosophers, more than a dozen Nobel Prize winners, and and was a beacon of life for many countries striving to be better, healthier, and stronger. Uh, I I guess all inspired to some degree by Darwin's ideas about human evolution. Yeah, I think one of the most surprising things about this whole saga is that if you've heard the word eugenics today, it's it's probably most closely associated with the atrocities of the Nazis and the Holocaust. Yeah, so the question, I guess, is how did um, we uh, this obs- once obscure academic idea lead to the Holocaust within just 50 years? Yeah, well, it, it was enormously well supported um, across, as we've been talking about, across political spectrum, um, across class divides, people on the progressive left, um, the emerging socialist movement in in the United Kingdom, the suffragists, first wave feminists, mm-hmm. many of them, almost n- not exclusively, but many of them were very positive about the idea of improving the the stock of the British people or the American people in America um, via this this process of restricting this fundamental freedom. It's it's so odd to us to say these things now because eugenics is such a toxic idea. It's it's so poisonous now because we associate it with the acts of the Holocaust. But in this space of time, you know, remember, I think of it as a mindset. But what Galton does is apply science or pseudoscientific ideas about evolutionary change. And the political or the politicos of the time, the, the sort of thought leaders of the time say, yeah, this is exactly what we need. This is an idea that's been around since Plato, but now we have the mechanism for it. We've got the actual evolutionary change as described, um, but via Galton, via Darwin. Well, and could it 
Could now, it work? Now that we've got that, this is what we have to do to maintain the status quo. Well, could it work or was it always a pseudoscientific fantasy? I think... All right. Well, that is a you know it, that is the key question, really, and I that's that's the, I devote the second half of the book to talking about that because and, and sort of removing. Well, we'll or, get back just, to it later, but uh, yeah, I was sure, just but, wondering um, because we were talking about all. Well, I mentioned a dozen Nobel Prize winners, so yeah. a whole bunch of scientists subscribe to this at one point or another. All of my work has become about the. The sort of liminal space between biology and society, and specifically when new discoveries are made or new advances in understanding biology in the natural world or human heredity, how quickly they become marshaled into pre-existing political ideology. So it happens in the 18th century with at the birth of biology with people like Linnaeus first describing humans in and putting them in subcategories based on pigmentation. And with that, we have the invention of both biology through classification, the Linnaean system that we still use today, which is, you know, homo sapiens or um, pan troglodytes. That, that, that was invented by Linnaeus. But when he does it for humans, he also invents racial categories, and they are the ones that we still basically use today. So immediately at the birth of biology, it gets co-opted into the existing prejudices of colonial expansion, European expansion. The same thing happens with eugenics in the 19th century. There is a there's political and cultural turmoil in this Victorian period, mass immigration in America, the progressive era in Sorry, mass immigration everywhere, but in the progressive era is dominated by the conversations about mass immigration. We've got urbanization. We've got, uh, you know, a more visible poor as cities grow and people coming from all over the colonies. And all of a sudden, this idea pops up where it says, where, where Galton says, well, science is the solution to this, right? We understand how evolution works. We understand how biology and heredity, heredity works. So I'm, we're gifting you this scientific framework that that tells you that your ideology is right. The problem is they didn't know anything about biology at the time. These are neonatal, newborn, infant subjects. I, I say in the book that, you know, I've been studying genetics now for 25 years, and I'm the first person to admit how little we know. Yeah. But back then, they, they knew it all. They knew enough to warrant... The, sterilize, the mass sterilizations of hundreds of thousands of people. And the truth is, they did not know what they were doing. And we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But I, I wanted to um, address something you, you write. All science is political. If mm. all science is political, should scientists be forced to consider the potential consequences of their work? It's a contentious thing, I say there. And a lot of scientists push back on that. The principles of science are beyond the political. They're meant to, the whole purpose of science is to remove all of our prejudices and baggages and, you know, all the stuff that we lug around with us that, that, that bend our view of objective reality. But that's, that's, the, that's the principle. That's the, that's the goal. The trouble is science is done by people and people aren't even aware of the prejudices that they carry with them. So Galton himself was trying his first work in this area was in a book called hereditary genius in which he well one tried to establish what a genius was which is a pretty fuzzy at best nebulous concept and secondly he wanted to demonstrate that it was it ran in families and that this was this was biologically encoded this was innate these these qualities of high achieving men because there are no women in this book because he's not interested in women at all and so he, he sets out to describe the pattern of inheritance of the great classical musicians the great conductors poets uh, scholars lawyers barristers judges writers all of them men and he see he say, he describes look at they run in families and look at the statistical patterns of these the flow of this genius now you know everything i just said then i bet the listeners are thinking yeah this sounds pretty cranky yeah but even now hasn't the american evolutionary biologist stephen Chu HSU promoted the possibility of selecting for intelligence and creating a super race of humans with, he says, IQs greater than 1,000. 
He's he's a former physicist and administrator at Michigan State University. Hello? Did we lose him? Wait, I think. Are you there? Yeah, he's he's on mute. How's that? Yeah, yeah, you're back. Did you did you hear the question? Uh, I did hear the question. Yeah, I'm pretty critical of of Stephen Sue in the book. I he I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Um, I mean, it's it's literally impossible to have an IQ of a of a thousand. That's not how. Now uh, you tell me. Yeah, (laughs) it's like you know. If I I was trying to think of an analogy in the books, and I I came up with it, it's like scoring five hundred and ten pin bowling. It's simply not possible by the by the scoring mechanism. Um. But again, it's a mindset thing. You remember in the in the eighties and nineties, there were sperm banks set up which claimed to have the the, the sperm of Nobel Prize winners mm. and high achieving academics, and that you could get women could go and get that genetic material in order to to have the smartest kids. Well, and, and now there are new technologies such as CRISPR, and of course, we've been using genetic screening. Uh, yeah, that's right. And they, they've emerged out of the field of genetics, which itself emerged out of the field of eugenics. Now, i got to be clear on this. I am a geneticist. I think many of the techniques developed to alleviate human suffering are some of the best advances in science in the in the, in the the 20th and 21st century. I'm not criticizing my own field. What I'm very down on is the over-interpretation of our current understanding of genetics, which is wickedly complex and not understood by geneticists. It, the over-application of that to go back to ideas that are very rooted in the eugenics mindset, you know, I can select an embryo which is, um, hypothetically, is going to score higher on IQ tests as a result of understanding the genetic makeup of that egg or sperm. Well, you can buy that service. There are kids born who have who have been subject mm. to that selection criteria, and the truth is, it's nonsense. It's an incredible waste of money by people who are desperate to just get these marginal gains. Which I, you know, I probably don't need to tell you this. You can improve your IQ by having a cup of coffee before you take the test. <laughs> um, IQ fluctuates through time, and that's and that's before you even actually question what IQ is even measuring so in 20 years time they're going to find out that they dropped 200 grand on improving potentially the iq of their children by one point when actually we know how to improve the iq of children across the whole population Uh, stuff like reading them books or better health care or access to sporting activities or sanitation all of these things have enormously positive effects on educational outputs and yet you've got these people wasting money saying, selling products, saying, well, yeah, we can, if you choose this embryo, then you might bump up your IQ by a couple of points. It what, won't work. What are your thoughts on CRISPR? I think CRISPR is a, it's, it's an incredibly powerful technology. It's, it has already revolutionized pretty much every aspect of genetics in just the 10 years that it's been around. Can it be it called is, eugenics? No, I don't think so. It's a screwdriver. It's a tool. It's a really accurate tool for editing um, genomes in any species. But as ever with tools, they can be used for uh, for nefarious aims. Now, th- this ha- we, we think this has happened at least once with a, a Chinese scientist back in 2018 who had attempted to CRISPR edit immunity to HIV into... Two embryos, which can, he re-implanted can, into the mother. Can you hold up on that? I was going to, after we take a little break, I was going to come back to that, okay? Um, I want to take a little break right now, if that's okay. Uh, of course. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org.
I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Adam Rutherford. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org, or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And um, since this is Women's History Month, if you become a BAI buddy, oh well, for a BAI buddy for fifteen dollars or more, that means uh, giving fifteen, twenty, twenty five, whatever dollars a month. Uh, as long as you feel comfortable doing that, allowing us to be able to plan for the future, or if you make a $100 contribution to BAI uh, during this month, you can receive the Women's History Collection as I give to you. It's a a 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that have been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI, and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Leonard Lopate at large as your favorite show. And we return now to Adam Rutherford, who is the author of several books, but the one we are discussing is Control the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, published by W.W. Norton. He's also the co-host of the BBC Science podcast, The Curious Case of Rutherford and Fry. And okay, now let's uh, begin. uh, Let's go back to what you were just talking about, where you begin your book with the account of a professor who in 2018, attempted to genetically modify the embryos of twin daughters. What happened there? Yeah, it was a pretty shocking thing. Uh, So announced at a conference in Hong Kong, and due to the time difference, that was happening during the night when I was asleep. And as as someone who is both a geneticist, but also a science communicator and broadcaster like yourself, um, people often, the media often turn to me to make comment on on big stories like this. So I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning on the, whatever day of the week it was. My phone has got dozens of missed calls and messages from, from friends and media contacts saying, call me, have you seen what's happened? What the hell is this, etc." And I've got no idea what's going mm-hmm. on. And it was the announcement by this guy, Professor Hei Jiang Kui, at this Hong Kong uh, academic conference him announcing the birth of two baby girls who were given the names Lulu and Nana, whom he had genetically engineered using CRISPR uh, to introduce immunity to HIV. Because their father suffered from it. That's right. So HIV is a, is, is, exists in China as it has enormous stigma associated with it, um, much more so than it does these days in in the US and in in the UK, and during the IVF process, he'd taken their gene genomes of two fertilized eggs and attempted to edit them with one particular gene he was looking at, which is called CCR5. There is a naturally occurring version of this gene, which means that if you have two copies of that gene, you cannot get infected with HIV and you can't get AIDS. About 1% of Europeans have that particular version. So his idea was, if I can edit these embryos so that they have this version of the of the CCR5 gene, then these babies will never be susceptible hmm. to HIV infection, which their father has. Now, you tell that story like that and you think, well, hold on a minute, that's that sounds like a good thing. Right. Until you unpick everything underneath what's actually happening there. The first thing is that is classified as human experimentation. That is serving as genetic modification for a for a disease that most people don't get. So So he's been dubbed China's Frankenstein as a result. That's right. And for for a few hours, China's headlines said 
were proclaiming this guy was a genius until a few hours later when it started spreading around the world and the rest of the world started reacting with this is awful and and calling him China's Frankenstein and so on, at which point those headlines vanished. But it was it was so much worse than that anyway. I mean, human experimentation is banned under various accords that derive from the atrocities of the Holocaust. And this does count as human experimentation. But the second thing is the experiment that he had conducted didn't work. It didn't work by his own admission, by the data he actually presented, uh, the edit that he had attempted to make on this one particular gene. In neither case was it successful. And he showed that it wasn't successful in his presentation. And he chose to go ahead and implant those embryos anyway into the mother. And they, they were born. And we don't really know anything about Ludo and Nana. And it turned out there was a third baby girl called Amy mm. who was also born. Um, to, she emerged only... Uh, the, the, Knowledge of her only emerged later. Well, and, and it appears that the girls have not had the immunity, but he was jailed for three years and fined a lot of money, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. And I think I think he got a light sentence, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that this was a immoral, unethical, criminal, experimental act. He's back and working now. He's out of jail. He tweets, he's on Twitter, he talks about doing genetic engineering, mm. he gets invited, he's in, in the last couple of months, he's been in the UK talking at universities about the ethics of bioengineering and genetic engineering for humans. And I think this is, <laughs> I'm not the type of person who gets outraged very easily, but to my mind, this is a person who should be never allowed near a biomedical facility, let alone a pipette. Well, for the fair, rest of his life. A fair number of doctors got involved in uh, eugenics in Nazi Germany. How was the concept of eugenics interpreted there? Wasn't it an issue with the Nuremberg doctors' trial? It, it was. So the Nuremberg doctors' trial was the second of the Nuremberg trials that happened uh, a year after. And in that, they dealt with the... Um, the sort of psychiatric program and, and the the various medical programs of of the of the Nazis. What had developed in the twenties initially during the Weimar Republic years and into the Nazi period in the nineteen thirties was a version of eugenic thinking which which had it had it had two sort of principles to it. One was Nordic purity, so the concept that the Nordic people, which becomes the Aryan people, were the, the the best and therefore should be protected, particularly against miscegenation, about uh, against um, breeding in from lesser um, inferior races. Interestingly, the early American, uh, sorry, the early German eugenicists were not particularly anti-Semitic, and in fact, they, many of them thought that the success of Jewish people in various academic pursuits was such that. That Nordic people should breed with with Jews in order to improve the outcome of Nordic people, but with Hitler's virulent anti-Semitism, that sort of f fell away. The, the second thing, and, and this becomes enshrined in the, what becomes known as the Nuremberg Laws in the nineteen thirty from about nineteen thirty five, is the purification of of the German population by attempting to eradicate people with disabilities. And that's, it was a very broad, wide ranging um, sort of loose definitions, people with obvious physical dis disabilities or deformities, but also people with schizophrenia, alcoholics, epileptics, um, people with achondroplasia, so classic dwarfism, um, men with Huntington's disease, which doesn't really even onset until you're in your forties or fifties. So sterilizing them would have no particular effect anyway. But this is the same pattern that you see whenever eugenics is either discussed or enacted. It starts off as a sort of positive thing. We want to improve the quality of these people by enhancing the, the desirable characteristics and reducing the undesirable characteristics. But in every case around the world where this has been enacted, which is more than 30 countries, it starts off with, this is a good thing. And then very rapidly, it's who gets included in the undesirable characteristics, racialized minorities, women with menstrual troubles, people with major disabilities, people with minor mental health disabilities. And then it just eventually it always just ends up it's people who aren't us. And that was very much the um, 
the Nazi sensibility. It, eugenics was a key part of the Holocaust, but it wasn't the Holocaust wasn't just eugenics. You know, the, many of the Nazi policies were pretty deranged mm. and came from many different sources, including mm. that virulent anti-Semitism. But it's also directed against Slavs or um, homosexuals or, uh, you know, all, all sorts of people who were just deemed not worthy of German citizenship during this time. Well, we see some of that kind of uh, prejudice popping up even now in, in uh, well, I, I think politics all over the world. I'll get into that in just a moment, but I want to tell people that uh, my guest is Adam Rutherford, whose latest book is Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, published by W.W. W. Norton. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Would you call sex-selective abortion in countries like India and China forms of eugenics? There have been reports that 80% of Uyghur women have been detained in the Xinjiang uh, region and sterilized by surgery or uh, been forced uh, to um, have an IUD inserted. And then in Canada, there's an ongoing class action in response to coerced sterilization of First Nation women, uh, something we think of as in the past, but it occurred as recently as 2018. Yeah, yeah. So again, that's the mindset. I, I'm reluctant to call those things eugenics because I think it's become such a toxic word that they actually... The conversations we have in public are just, they're not helped by having these very loaded terms. These are all incidents, though, which very much look like the historical eugenics of the first half of the 20th century. Um, the, the, there was a report only two weeks ago of the number of people still alive in the state of Utah who had been sterilized uh, under eugenic laws in the 1960s. So, and, and the answer was, you know, dozens, and uh, it's ma been, many dozens. And it's been alleged that up to 20 women underwent involuntary sterilization in U.S. immigration detention centers in 2020. Yes. So, again, uh, I think they're pretty much verified now. Un un involuntary sterilization still occurs. Much significantly lower numbers in, in the U.S. And, and in Canada, but not 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 vanished i think when you look at sex selective um sterile uh, sex selective abortions in the two most populous countries on earth china and india again these are policies which are about population control they're about trying to shape the population trying to reduce population growth but you can i think one of the interesting things about when looking at these policies in these countries is who chooses and who gets sterilized because it is always in all cases and it's an expression of power on the powerless hmm. and that again like with the beginning of this concept this is where we start in the conversation uh, it's an expression of of power of control that's why i called the book control it was i was trying to come up with a sort of snappy concept which which fitted what all of these types of ideologies are trying to do biology is unruly but what people do and have done for thousands of years is attempt to impose control over it for political reasons. And it's part of the history of the United States. It's part of the history of the United Kingdom. It's a major part of the history of Europe via Germany in the 20th century. But it's an ongoing mindset and part of the present in China, in India. And now with the advent of these new tools, as a result of very smart geneticists. Um, it is now coming back as as reminiscent of the same types of ideas. One of the reasons we study history is 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 to see what people did in the past and see how they echo in the present. I think that scientists are quite bad at history quite often, and the conversations that I can see happening right now with new techniques, they look a lot like the types of conversations people were having. 100 years ago, conversations that were written about by, you know, Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby or talked about by Teddy Roosevelt in, 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 uh, in the Capitol or by Churchill in, in Parliament or by people in the Reichstag in, in Berlin. They look a lot like what was, what, was, what was being talked about a century ago 
And all of those things ended in bad places. Mm. Well, you say that to know history is, I'm quoting you, to inoculate ourselves against its being repeated. So should we just eliminate the concept of eugenics totally from any scientific inquiry from now on? I think education about what it was, how it was proposed to work, how it, uh, what I argue, how it didn't work, but the repercussions of the types of mindset that value some people's lives over others is how we learn not to repeat those mistakes. These are very human qualities that we all want our family and our children and our our extended families and our countries and our, 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 our kin to do well and to live pain-free lives and to be successful. And we will do whatever we can to ensure those things. But the question is, how far do we go in order to ensure that those, those wins? How much do we extend our own benefits over those of people that we don't know? Who gets to decide who is worthy of reproduction and who is not? And eugenics has ended in the sort of state-imposed um, systems that were part of the, the framework of 20th century America and, and Germany. But they, have, they continue in India and they continue in China and in many, many other countries. But they also continue in the mindset of people who, haven't, who don't know this history or aren't interested in it or don't know that, that, the, that the Nazis' main influence in developing their eugenics policies was... Um, upstate New York hmm. pseudoscientists campaigning to shut immigration down. So I do think, I stand by that line. We learn this history to inoculate ourselves against it being repeated. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to address one thing. Every so often I see a headline uh, that uh, where a study claims to have found the gene for something. Um, <laughs> Do they ever find the gene for something? And would that <laughs> apply to what we're discussing? Yeah, well, it's it's been a bugbear of mine and many geneticists for a few decades now. It's a very natural way of thinking about how inheritance works. And when we discovered the concept of genes, that was that guy, Gregor Mendel, the Moravian monk in the 19th century. We found this unit of inheritance and it became known as the gene. Now, genes encode proteins and proteins do things in the body. The way that we teach genetics is to is that there are genes for particular traits, for particular characteristics. Eye colour or hair colour or, you know, diseases like Huntington's. Now, there's two things to say about it, and this is part of the mission of me and some colleagues in America and all around the world who are trying to correct the way we talk about these how, how we teach genetics. There are no genes for any particular trait. It's so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And when we teach in, to high school biologists that, you know, brown eyes are dominant over blue eyes, you've got to have two copies of the blue eye gene to have blue eyes, right? These things are not really true. <laughs> <laughs> and and if, if there are any teenagers listening, then please answer what it says in the textbook because you won't get marks if you tell them that I said it's not very true. But it's not. They're not very true. They're much more complicated than than these simple, simplistic models that we use. But more than that, all of those techniques, all of those descriptions came out of Charles Davenport, the eugenics research, uh, sorry, eugenics records office in Cold Spring Harbor, because they wanted to show that everything was under the actions of a single gene. And therefore, if you knew what those genes were and how they ran through families, then you have a pivot in which you could leverage eugenics. If you can say, we want more blue eyes, we want less Huntington's, mm. we want more um, upstanding citizens and fewer Alas, degenerates. Alas, then, we've, run out, we've run out of time. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Adam Rutherford, his latest book, Control the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics from W.W. W. Norton. Um, he's the author of several books and also the co-host of the BBC Science Podcast, The Curious Case of Rutherford and Fry. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank Scary you, as it, it is. Great. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I hope it's hopeful for the future. It's a, it's a, history is always exciting, but only when you look forward. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. 
If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can find our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you want to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and keep the station on the air. We are going through pretty rough times right now because of the pandemic and other issues. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now uh, and and giving us your support. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. I'm sure you did much of what you heard today, what you heard for the first time. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics by Adam Rutherford. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 dollars a month, which allows us to uh, plan for the future. Uh, and if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to BAI during this Women's History Month, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. They've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or go to, in this case, online women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Low Paid at Large as your favorite show. I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listen donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants and we're the only station the New York Radio Dial that is 100% listener sponsored. Please keep us alive and thriving with your tax deductible support. We're off tomorrow but I hope you can join us again next week at this time. Have a great weekend.